This week's episode is presented by Outbrain, which is underwriting this end-of-the-year series focused on building sustainable local journalism businesses. Each week for the next four weeks, I'll be talking to an operator who's doing just this. In addition, The Rebooting has partnered with Outbrain to bring an important conversation to CES, which is coming up in January. If you're going to Vegas for CES, I hope you will join us for this. I'll be recording a live podcast on Thursday, January 5th, focused on a very critical issue, which is how brands can support independent news, even in an economy that appears headed for a rough patch. I'm going to be joined by Group M Chief Innovation Officer Crystal Oliveri for this conversation, and we'll also be adding other industry leaders. We're going to be getting the inside view on how the biggest brands are thinking about how to manage their ad spending to support important initiatives while still driving results. This is always the push and the pull. The event takes place on Thursday, January 5th at Catch Restaurant, and that is at the Aria, if you're unfamiliar with it. It kicks off at 11.30 a.m. with a lunch, followed by a View from the Top segment with David Kostman, who is Outbrain's co-chief executive. And then I'll have my conversation with Crystal and other industry leaders. So please do consider joining us to RSVP. Please go to Outbrain CES 2023 dot splash hat dot com. I will leave that in the show notes and it is in the email newsletter. So I hope you do join us. Directly following my conversation with Yashi, I have a conversation with Outbrain co-founder and co-CEO Yaron Galai on the path forward for sustainable independent media. Please do stick around and listen. Rebooting Show is a podcast about how to build sustainable media businesses. I'm Brian Marcy, and each week I speak to those who are doing the hard work to build these businesses. This week, I'm kicking off a series that is underwritten by my friends at Outbrain, in which I focus on the local news business. To kick it off, I spoke to Yashi Herman. Yashi is the founder of The Mill a newsletter focused on Manchester, England, that's not New Hampshire, that has attracted 1,600 paying subscribers since its launch in June 2021. In addition to The Mill, Yashi has launched a sister publication for Sheffield and and Liverpool, also in the north of England. Uh, Yashi and I spoke about aligning the needs of a local audience with the publication, what drives people to support local news, and the importance of building lean infrastructure to keep a local news business sustainable in the long term. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and thanks again to Outbrain for supporting this series. Yashi, welcome to the podcast. I, I've said his name incorrectly now three times, but we're, we're off to a good yeah, start. Yeah, we go. But we actually knew each other in in New York, obviously not well in person. When when you were doing Babe.net and stuff, how did you? First of all, how did you come upon going into local? Because I want to get into it, but like also just like my God, like this is a really difficult market to go yeah, into. Yeah, it's it is a difficult market. I can't remember exactly when I got interested in it, but when I was living in New York, I was invited to a a journalism conference in in Arizona. It was in the. It was in Arizona. It was. I. I can't remember exactly where it was. Uh, what's the. What's the big city in Arizona? Phoenix. It was in. Phoenix. It was in Phoenix. Phoenix. Uh, Terrible place. I actually, quite liked it, but the conference wasn't great because all of these people <laughs> were. Well, there was a lot of. There was a lot of chin scratching about the problems in local journalism, and uh, there was yeah. a. There was a lot of feeling that, effectively, we had to throw our arms in the air. There were some people who had solutions, but all of those solutions had to do with getting millions of dollars off a, a wealthy, you know, person to, to 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 be a philanthropist and and that kind of model. And I think there's a lot of uh, mileage in that model, but I felt like the consensus at this kind of conference, and I, you know, I hope I'm not mischaracterizing it, was the consensus in the sessions I went to seemed to be, God, like this is this is just a. Uh, th- th- this is a problem that's going to be really, really difficult to solve, or, or at least like, this isn't going to be solved by the market. And when I hear stuff like that, I think what that means is this isn't going to be solved by getting the revenue from the readers. It's going to have to be like the money's going to have to come from from billionaires or something who just happen to love the, this project. And I, I have, ever since I went to that conference, I always thought 
bet there is a, just a, like a much cheaper and much more nimble way of doing this local news thing, but with much lower cost, no print, and no huge operation, but a very, very low volume of very, very high quality content. Like I kind of had that in the back of my head. And then it must have been five or six different influences kind of made me think, eventually, I want to give that I want to give that model a go. Very low volumes of very high quality differentiated storytelling in a local area. I think that could work if you do it with subscriptions. So that's kind of how I got to to this model. Yeah. And you had you'd worked in local news previously. Yeah. So my, the first four years of my career were at the London Evening Standard, which is the big city newspaper yeah. in the UK. And so I had learned journalism from a sort of city perspective. But I'd also learned it from writing features and you know long form or sort of medium form in American terms, probably not long form, but you know for us, you know two thousand words, four thousand words. And I think learn it. Wait, are we are are we like? Uh, do we? I think you guys don't. I think I think long form journalists in your neck of the woods don't get out of bed for less than ten thousand words. But uh, <laughs> but uh, wow. well, if they're still getting paid by the word, that's yeah. Smart. But but we we don't have so much of a culture of that here. And I felt if I did a feature-based publication, if I base it around like this sort of narrative storytelling that I really like reading and, and that I've done in my career, that that might make it differentiated enough. Because as you know, the problem with a lot of journalism online now is if you're not heavily differentiated, you're going to struggle with subscriptions. Yeah. yeah. And just to like circle back really quickly on the benevolent billionaire's point, because it, it is went through this period where the answer was always either nonprofit model or it was, we're going to find a benevolent billionaire. And it was always pining for that local benevolent billionaire. And the problem is not all billionaires, but sometimes the billionaires are not benevolent and, and they do things for, for interests. And, and I always thought that just giving up on coming up with a sustainable model was always a mistake. And the only way get to sustainability in most of these markets is by fixing the cost structure. Yeah, I think I think that sounds yeah. right. I think the other thing about the benevolent billionaires is they may be benevolent for two years, but then if you piss off yeah. their best friend and they've got all these rich friends, they might not be benevolent anymore. And, and, and so for me, the big thing was sustainability. Can you get revenue to a point where it actually sustains your operation and you're not reliant on, you're not reliant on philanthropy or, or, or investors or whatever? But I think that... Um, yeah, I think the cost structure is a big thing. If you think about print, like the the monopolies that were created in print were created by the fact that some people could afford to have printing presses and most people couldn't. So the people who had the printing presses mm -hmm. had the monopoly. And that was that meant that there was this massive cost involved in getting to news, but if you had if you could sustain that cost, you could be the only newspaper in Chicago or one of the two. Yeah. And I it's a moat and it was a it was, good it, time. was a, it was totally a moat. <laughs> and and I think the realization in the past 10 years that that has totally fallen away in local as well as in sort of global and, and national news is big because it means people who don't have a huge amount of money and who can't afford to staff up an entire newsroom with like 10 education reporters and five sports reporters, whatever, they can also play at this game that they can also try and create good quality local news. Right. And so when you were thinking about this idea, it was also during the, the rise of Substack, I guess in the beginning, right? And and I think what Substack did, and I'm on the Substack platform, but I've got my differences with them. But I think what they did really smart was enable a system that allowed for a lot of the infrastructure costs to get sucked out of the business because you weren't out there hustling up ads doing an ad server, bringing on like a data platform and all the stuff that just adds to the infrastructure costs beyond the printing press. There's limitations to, to the model, but it definitely cuts the cost down quite a bit. Explain why, but, but at the same time, it, it is often built around solo creators. Explain how you got started on Substack and what you saw in newsletters in general. Well, I think, to be honest, I, I came up with the idea of doing this kind of local journalism because I realized that one of the big assumptions underlying subscription media was not quite right or wasn't right anymore. You generally, when you spoke to people in the media about doing subscriptions, there was this very strong orthodoxy that everyone told you about, which is that you have to have a critical mass of content in terms of volume to charge a subscription. 
So it's like, if you're going to charge a subscription to people, you're going to need to be publishing 20 stories a day or 50 stories a day or, or whatever the, 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 the number was. But it was always a lot. And therefore, you build from that piece of logic. The next bit is, okay, I'm going to need to have a team of 25 people minimum. All right, okay, fine. So that's going to cost me $5 million a year. Right, okay, that gets me out of the game. That gets 99% of people who want to do any sort of media company out of the game straight right from the beginning. What I realized when I was reading Substack was I was paying five bucks a month for a few different Substackers, and they were giving me almost no content. Like They were giving me two extra stories per month or like four extra stories per month. They were giving me fewer words for my five bucks a month than you could find on the front page of the New York Times sometimes. So it was like, huh, if I'm willing to pay these guys basically because, and women, sorry, because they are giving me a a highly differentiated type of story, but they're giving it in very low volumes, that's that's a big break in the logical chain that the people have been thinking about, right? The orthodoxy you have to have loads and loads of content to charge subscriptions is gone. You can charge subscriptions, but you just have to make them as what you're doing as differentiated and as interesting and as 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 kind of you couldn't get this anywhere else as possible. And 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 I think as soon as I realized that, I was like, well, the, this kind of media company that I've been thinking about for local that could actually work because via these via these paid newsletters. Because look at all these other people doing it with other formats. Yeah, how did you choose Manchester? I assume you have a personal tie there, but still, you have to like think about the business. Oh, you don't. I, I have no tie to it other than I support the football team, the the only football team, the red football team here. And I thought there was two. Well, yeah, allegedly. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm, I'm sophisticated. <laughs> allegedly, there are two. I actually live <laughs> much closer to the Man City Stadium than, than Old Trafford. But yeah, I, look, I've, I've been here a lot for work, a bit for work. I'd come here a lot for football. I had, you know, I had a desire after I left university a long time ago to live in the North at some point because I felt it was an interesting part of the country. And it just kind of coincided. I was like, well, this is the kind of city that requires this kind of thing. Previously, I've lived in places like London, New York. They don't so urgently require like innovation in local media because they've got a lot of journalists there. Whether they're doing good local journalism or not, I don't know. But there are just yeah. hundreds, if not probably thousands of like very high quality journalists in London from international Outlets and local outlets yeah. and, and 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 I don't know BuzzFeed and Vice and you know all the rest of it. Whereas you don't have that in Manchester. You have very very few journalists operating here compared to London. So I thought it was a good place to do it. It was a fun challenge for me. It was pandemic. It was a few months into the pandemic. So I really had nothing to do at home. I was, I was living I was living at my mum's. I was helping out a lot with my sister in her garden sort of patch. And, and it was just like a it was it was a challenge more than anything. This is an unusual entrepreneurial journey that we're on. Yeah, it is. You're in the garden <laughs> and, and, and then you're into Manchester. But what I love about it is that, you know, and I, I always go back with this with people who create businesses from the sort of quote unquote content side. And it's totally different <laughs> from the operator side in that, like, it wasn't like a deep like econometric an- analysis like well there's so many like you know college graduates in the greater manchester area and this many like businesses and this like at some point it's like no this is like i got a feel for it cuz i mean you that's what you develop as like a journalist you have instincts and and you have sensibility and yeah I, I, and as yeah, a, as a journalist in the past decade you there is a frustration that the kind of journalism you want is being done less and less. It's being commissioned less and less. Yeah. There are fewer, fewer. You know, like when I was on the London Evening Standard, we had eight feature writers. I asked one of my old colleagues there how many they have now, and it's one. Like the, the big newspapers here used to have big features desks. Now it's all kind of freelance. So the bit of journalism that I really care about had been particularly cut away. This kind of feature writing side of it, this more in-depth journalism. So there was the kind of like I want to create. The kind of journalism that I want to see in the world, or I want to see in British society, there was that. Yeah, there was. A, look, there was a spreadsheet. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna take the take the hit from you that no. there was no no economic petrifying. I'm not against spreadsheets. <laughs> I am not against spreadsheets. I have several spreadsheets open. On but uh, yeah, look, there was a, there browser, was a little right? bit of looking at looking at the demographics and stuff. But no, it's much more like you said, editing and running a media organization is so much about gut and instinct and like trying to understand what you think people yeah. will want. And, and I, I think starting the mill was kind of just like a, a version of publishing a story where you're like, I think people want this. And I've spoken to some people and they claim that they want it, but you just never know until you hit publish. Yeah. 
Okay, so you started with the when, when did the newsletter start? Started in June 2020. Okay. And so from the start, you're like, okay, the business model, we're going to keep the, the costs real low and the business model is going to be subs. You started with subs out of the gate. I mean, it was, it was only me. So the cost was kind of the work yeah. that I wasn't doing. I was still doing a little bit of freelancing for the, for the newspapers <laughs> here. So the costs were unbelievably low. It was always going to be subs. I, I, I specifically wanted to create a media company that was about high quality stuff that I really would like to read and that's subs based because I had been through some of the the ad funded media gold rush or we i think we you know we you could say we were both involved in that in new york so i i, I had seen yeah. the the limitations there yeah what were the limitations that that you saw you know i think you've only got a small amount of time to get my answer to this but i know i was going to say were, that <laughs> you know better than me but but clearly there was a moment in 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 media i just want to make sure the limitations that i see are the same no for sure <laughs> there was a there was a there was a moment in media in my from my perspective where people really believed that if you had 10 million people reading you every month or 100 million or 200 million that meant something like having 10 million subscribers on your newspaper in the 80s or 100 million or whatever and and there was this kind of false yeah. equivalence between unit users who might literally spend 30 seconds on your website per month and like like old metrics that really meant something and i think the big realization the big tide going out moment was when people realized that those uniques that traffic, which mainly came from Facebook in the era that I was involved, did not convert into anything else that was valuable. It didn't convert really well into yeah. selling stuff. It didn't convert really well into subscriptions. It didn't even convert really well into joining an email list or listening to a podcast. And I, I think as soon as that realization came, came about, the, the VCs who were backing this kind of massive gold rush suddenly thought, hang on, this is not worth a tenth of what we thought it was. I think I saw the other day that BuzzFeed's current valuation is roughly I think it was ten percent of the of the of the peak valuation they got in one of their fundraisers. I mean, that's yeah. that's a remarkable yeah. destruction of value, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's totally. And, and it's it's funny because it's a lot of it is like on the face of it, it never made sense, right? <laughs> like, I mean, but like we, I don't know whether it's mass delusion or something, or just we don't want to like sort of think too deeply about it. But like, it never made sense, like uh, uh, the massive numbers that people. And then obviously we're not translating into business results and there's a lot of finger pointing and et cetera. What I, but, and what I, I, think I remember that, about that era, I, one of the iconic yeah. memories that I have of that era is listening to your podcast and hearing <laughs> the executives of all of the companies, mainly the bigger ones than, than oh, I was involved shit. in, say, Before that, well, shit, they would, well, well they, <laughs> would talk about, they would talk about the relationship. I remember it was always about, we have a deep relationship. We have, I, I think one, one of them said appointment, yeah. appointment reading or appointment viewing. There was a lot of very clever marketing about what this relationship was. And now we know, and I think we probably knew at the time, but like, you know, as you say, we were all involved in this, in this huge boom. You know, we, I think we all knew that that relationship was like, it was the equivalent of me, you know, walking past someone in the street in Manchester. That's the level of relationship that most media companies had with, let's say, 95% of their readers. Yeah. I tried to, I tried to be skeptical. No, you were. You, there, were there were moments of, yeah, there were, there were moments of that. <laughs> I, mean, I was like, seriously, come on, like these numbers are <laughs> right, ridiculous. Right, right, right. But anyway, let's get back to this. Uh, so you're going to start with a, a subscription model. Like, how are you deciding? Like, because like, I think one of the problems always with subscriptions is sampling. I mean, did you, but I mean, I think with Substack that, and maybe it changed, or, or maybe they evolved or something. But yeah, you know, I think what they found is you don't have, and you shouldn't put most of the content behind a paywall. Yeah, it's a, it's a funny one that, like my instinct at the beginning was, I want four fifths or, or, or nine tenths or something yeah. to be paywalled. I want people to have to come and find myself. But there's just this huge discovery problem. How the hell are people going to know what's behind the paywall? You can tell them, you can trail it in your one free email a week, but they're not going to know. So I've, I've settled on a cadence, which is we do roughly half our stuff is free and half our stuff is paid. And we don't have a fancy paywall like the Wall Street Journal where we can put the paywall up if we think this particular user is likely to pay. You know, it's just a, it's just a simple thing of some, like, well, like with your subsect, some things are paid, some things are free. Yeah. And that kind of works for us. Like we, we, we've built a lot of our growth just on that. And I, and I think that I would love there to be a little bit more paid. But it's just like, it's funny, whenever you move in that direction, you're like, mm, I just want a bit more exposure to those free people because I want every, every free thing you send is like your shop window. So that's the, that's the cadence I've settled on. But I think about this question quite a bit and I've, I've, I've never landed on exactly what, what we should be doing. Yeah. And it's, it's, it shifts for every single audience. Because like you said, the, the impetus for 
paying for a subscription a lot of times is not like purely transactional. It's it's almost a form of I don't want to say patronage, but like it's I want this to exist in the world. And I think if you have a community based model, and I think local is by its nature literally community based, you get a shot at at getting people to contribute to something existing because they want it to exist. You know, Hamish McKenzie from Substack said that to this to me the other day when I was talk- talking to him on his podcast, he was like, where do you think the mill fits on that sort of continuum from really transactional stuff to really kind of, we want to support this ongoing. But I think the thing you've just said, which actually I've never thought of, is local is particularly, I think you're saying, suited to a mm-hmm. model where people feel like they're not just paying for content, like you'd pay for a loaf of bread. They're paying for the continued existence of the organization. Oh, for sure. And I've never thought about it that way, but like, when you read comments and, and emails from our, our super fans, you know, our paying subscribers, 1,650 of them or whatever there are now, they mm. really talk about it like they want this thing to exist in Manchester in perpetuity. Like they, they want Manchester to have this thing. They see the mill as an asset, like a, of a specific asset for the city, and they want it to be there in five years, 10 years, because they think it enriches it. And and so it's very well suited to a model where 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 you've got this thing of this mix of motivations. I think that's, I think that's completely bang on. In fact, I'm going to I'm going to yeah. use that, that that line. Yeah, go ahead, put it in the sales yeah. kit. But I think like particularly with with local and um, and communities is you can you can you can tap into that like desire for something to exist and you know, ultimately you have to provide value for people. It's not like you know standing out like with a <laughs> you know, with a tip jar or something like that. But there's no doubt that, you know, we're seeing that people will support things that they want to exist in the world. And I think the key though, I think, and that's why the newsletter is interesting, is you have a level of engagement with a newsletter that, at least for now, in my view, in my experience, is very different than if you had set up like a regular like website. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's it's, it's like, we say like it's like apples and pears, you know, like the the relationship that you have when you're running an online, you know, an online media publisher and you've got 10 million, you, I mean, the, the, the amount of engagement we get per head or just like the total amount of engagement I get now is much, much higher than I ever had when I was running websites online that did millions and tens of millions of, of views. And it's much higher than I had when I was working on the Evening Standard, which is a, a print publication that went out to like you know, a million people in London, and and, and they, I, you could literally see them reading your stories on the tube on the way home when you were going home. You didn't get the kind of e- you didn't email in and stuff. The fact that these emails now, our journalism is arriving in people's inboxes, and it like and, and we always say like get in touch if you know more about this. Get in touch. Sometimes we'll just do a little news item in our newsletters, which we don't even think it's that great, but we've just stuffed it in because we just want to see if we can get pe- people to come out of the woodwork to become a source for a proper story. You know. And so mm-hmm. we'll do a little item on some school because we want the governors of that school to come out of the woodwork among our readers and get in touch. So it's absolutely phenomenal for that. I mean, it, one of the things about this job is responding to all the emails. It, I've, I've never had yeah. so many tips and emails and, and also just nice things encouraging us or saying, I like this, I like that. So that's such a big part of, that's yeah. such a nice part of doing newsletters. Yeah. You get nicer feedback. It's better than the comments section. Exactly. <laughs> It's 10 times nicer. I would always avoid the comments section. I was like, there's nothing good down there. Right. Like, nobody is going to be like, you know, I think you did a nice job, Brian. No. <laughs> that was not like sort of the feedback you generally get, which is fine. Like honest feedback, everyone email me, good, bad, whatever. But uh, okay, so you've got 1,600. Now you have a couple of of, of spinoff newsletters, yeah, right? Yeah, I think spinoff makes it sound too corporate, Brian. That's not the language That's, that we use. I don't know. We, we've, we, we've, got sister, we've got sister newsletters in Liverpool and, and Sheffield, sister which I think our American listeners will you know, hopefully know are, are also reasonably large northern cities in the UK. And yes. my grandmother is from Liverpool. Oh, was from wow. Liverpool. She that should mean that you're paying me five pounds a month for the for the for the post. Well, I don't. I think she last lived there in like 1910. That's fine. I mean, she's she passed That's away. That's fine. Probably you should still be subscribing. No, yeah, we've got we've got these two other cities, and effectively that came about because Substack had this program called Substack Local, and they were willing to back people who were who had ideas in local, and because the mill was already doing well in. Manchester, 
they gave us a good amount of money that allowed me to effectively back two other journalists in these other cities. I mean, I'm involved in the editing and I'm involved in the commissioning, but really there were journalists in these two cities who we were able to back and pay a salary until the thing broke even. Or like almost broke even, you know, sort of thing. I'm still putting a bit of money in. Yeah. So that was really transformative for us. Okay. So that that was the subsec program that allowed you to sort of, yeah. you know, get into other cities. Yeah. But it's going to be the business model right now is is purely subscriptions. You're what about ads? Yeah, we're doing a tiny little bit. So we're just starting ads because there comes a point where you're like, I've been doing this for two years. I've got 27,000 people on this email list in Manchester alone, 45,000 yeah. in total across the three cities. And you know, it's, it's, I think it's great that we've converted 7% or 7.5% to paying, but like the other 93%, I, that has to be monetized. Like we've got a really valuable audience. Yeah. They're getting great stuff from us twice a week. And you know, that's a revenue opportunity. So it's not something I've moved fast on and it's not something that Substack really pushes. But like it's, it would be mad yeah. for me not to not to take that opportunity. So at the moment, I've we're, we're starting to kind of do a few partnerships. We've done it. We've done to one test one and that kind of thing. Yeah, I don't want to make it a Substack podcast, but <laughs> <laughs> this is like always like a thing, like because you just no business is going to treat ninety three percent of the like product consumption as like marketing. Like it just does not. It doesn't compute to me. You're gonna have to figure out other ways to make money off that because you're creating value. And it, to me, it's just, it's just common sense. Right. And so I would expect Substack or like come up with some kind of micropayment scheme, something that allows that, or just to give in and be like, Hey, we're going to figure out an ad network because it doesn't make sense to only make money off 7% of your users. I don't care how many of these thousand true fans essays you, you publish. It just doesn't make sense to me. I think, yeah, I think I, I always think the commercial reality of that will eventually hit. And not just for that reason, by the way, not just because like in theory, there's loads of value there to be had, but also because everyone who's trying to do this is putting their, you know, blood, sweat, and tears into growing little media companies on Substack, whether it's one person or like me, a, a little team. And who on earth is going to leave the opportunity to grow on the table? It's like, oh, I could hire another reporter in Liverpool. I could hire a, I could hire a photographer in Manchester, but I'm not going to do that because, because, you know, these brands who really, really want to reach my audience, they're not able to. So yeah, I just think like the logic of like, every, yeah. we're, we're all trying to grow something here and, and, and that logic will kick in. Having said that, I always want subscriptions to be my main revenue model. Yeah. So, so, I, so, so explain that because it does, it forces you to be audience focused and you know as as someone who is is not obviously in the UK market but has found himself on some local UK newspaper site <laughs> i can say with a fair bit of confidence that they are not very user centric organizations yeah i mean it's the i'm glad you've been any time i do a slide if i do a slide about like adversarial business models for some presentation I'm like, oh, I need to put some horrific website up here. I just go down a list of like UK city newspaper websites and find some atrocity to take a screen grab. Yeah, it's, it is literally an atrocity, the way, the way that they treat their users. I mean, for, for listeners who have not spent the time, any time on the Manchester Evening News website or the Liverpool Echo website, you are talking about some of the worst user experiences on earth in terms of ad load and videos that are stopping you from reading this and yeah. constantly they really go constantly for it. trying to get you to sign up to this and sign up to that and join this it's just it is absolute it's almost a parody i think what that tells you what do they call these things wallpaper ads there's right. a lot of wallpaper the, uh, ads. you know that you know that you know the terminology i just know how i know i just know the experience it's funny actually in manchester there is a regular almost meme on the local reddit page which is someone will go on there and they will screenshot the Manchester Evening News homepage and they will say, what on earth is going yeah. on here? What has happened to the Manchester Evening News, which is like this you know, beloved newspaper until relatively recently. And then everyone will pile in and say, I just can't believe it. And my biggest ever sign-up day was not when I like, went on Radio 4. It was not when like, you know, anything like that. It was when someone did a Reddit thread about that. And the first comment was like, you've got to check out the mill. I got 450 people on my email list that afternoon. Because oh, that great. was the top of the Manchester Reddit. So it's, it is unbelievable. And just like to get into the kind of rationale behind that or like the, where we got there, if you think about online ads, there has always been a problem that there was a misaligned incentive. 
that the publishers wanted to reach as many people as possible, right? For the advertiser. But actually for readers, you want to read a bunch of content that's not necessarily written for as many people as possible. It's not viral content. It's not about celebrities. It's not about TV. It's about really niche stuff that you care about. So there was a mismatch between incentives of the reader and, and, and of the advertiser. I think when it comes to local, you get a really, really egregious example of that because effectively online ads are antithetical to local journalism. Because if you really want to make as much money from online advertising, you have to write stories that are going to reach, let's say, 5 million people or 10 million people. They could be read in Timbuktu. They could be read in London, even if you're in Manchester. They could be about Ronaldo or Man United. Or You get local newspaper websites in the UK who write about Xbox releases. And they won't write once. They'll write like 10 different stories about yeah. Xbox. So they're doing classic SEO clickbait stuff or just you know classic SEO content. And it's totally antithetical to local journalism. Good local journalism should be stuff that might only appeal to 5,000 people or it might only appeal to 500 people in a particular neighborhood. But you're never, ever going to do that on a, on a... Well, you're never going to prioritize that over all this other stuff on a, in a business model where you make more money if you reach millions. And so I think it's... That mismatch, which we're all aware of in this industry, has been particularly ruinous in local news. It has totally ruined a lot of these newspaper brands. Yeah, because it pulls, it kind of pulls their focus away from actually being essential to a local population, which is literally their, their, it's, their it's, one it, job. It, and it's like if an organization set out to do one thing and then their business model pulled them in diametrically the opposite direction. It's like, we will make more money yeah. if we write about something that Piers Morgan said on the CV this morning. If we write about something that some celebrity said on Instagram this afternoon, we will make a ton more money from that than if we report on local issues. And therefore, you know, obviously, loads of the stuff on their sites is about those things. Someone sent me, there's some sort of anonymous reporter in London who sent me a list of the most read stories on a, on a website called My London, which is a, a, you know, owned by mm -hmm. Reach PLC. It's one of these things that's just like tons and tons of this kind of content. And the vast majority of their stories, their most read stories, had nothing to do with London. They were to do with celebrities. They were to do with TV shows. It was really, really like eye-opening. They sent me the, the October stuff and the November stuff, and both of them had very, very... Basically, there was nothing in the top tens from what I can remember that was actually journalism either. It was rewriting internet stuff. It was really like, wow, that's, that's where we've got to now. Yeah. So what does this allow? What what is the like how do you describe the focus then? Let, let's just stick with the mill. Like what do you guys do but more importantly what do you don't do? Yeah, I mean we don't do rewriting press releases and, and sticking them out as if they're news. We don't write about stuff that celebrities have said on social media. We don't write about stuff that's coming out on TV. We don't write about stuff that's like the, the you know 10 different stories about the new Xbox and like when to get it. Obviously we don't do those things. The stuff that we do is stuff that we think we can do better than anyone else. It's like stuff that we can confidently say at the end of the week, if people wanted to read this kind of stuff, if they're interested in this, then they had to come to the mill to get it. And if they wanted all of it, they had to pay the mill to get it. That's like our big thing. It's like, do we believe in these stories? Do we really like them? And are they stories that like people couldn't get anywhere else? And, and that's like our big guiding light. And, and actually, you don't have to explicitly explain that to your reporters every day because a lot of stuff now is just not being provided by, by, by these, these other companies that, that run local news in the country. I mean, there are three or four companies that control about 80% of local news outs, outlets in the country, and they have all pretty much chosen the business strategy that you've just been outlining. And, the, and, and, and therefore, there are just tons of interesting stories that my team can go and find in Manchester, Liverpool, and Sheffield that are not being provided. It's not like I have to say, hang on, would that ever appear on the Manchester Evening News? That, that, that question doesn't really come up. It's just like the field has been left open. Coming back to that conference, it just feels like the field has been left open in this absolutely critical bit of the media ecosystem. The field has been left open, to, you know, to mix metaphors a bit, for, for, for basically... For, for anyone, it's, it's, it's been emptied. You know, people have, people have gone off and, and done a completely different thing. Yeah. But I mean, you guys are doing like, like reporting, right? So I think one of the knocks on a lot of these like very lean models is, well, they, they're going to end up just being like commentary or aggregation and they're not quote unquote, like real journalism. I, I hear this said a lot about like particular new, particularly newsletters. As if there's only one form of journalism, but leave that aside. Yeah, I think yeah. Obviously, I think there's a lot of value in in lots of different forms of journalism, even if it doesn't require investigation and digging. A, a typical story for us 
like a, like a big story for us, something that would that, that, that people would associate us with, would be a story like the one we're publishing tomorrow. So there's a school near Manchester which is very very well known and very prestigious, and it's been got this terrible report from the inspectors, right? So we've spent a month and a half speaking to 16 different sources, kids who go there, teachers who work there, governors, parents, about what's really going on. What's really going on inside this school? Why has it been described as a complete disaster by these inspectors? And we've written a three and a half thousand word story and we've given the school two weeks to respond. You know, we've harassed them to try and get on the phone with us to give us a fuller account. We've got a statement off them. So it's like, you know, I don't think it's what you'd call investigative journalism. It's not like going through, you know, you know, millions of documents, but it's just old fashioned, good, good, you know, magazine yeah. journalism. But it's accountability, right? Like, I think a lot of times when people go to, you know, at least here, like with, with the different like newsletter based local mm. efforts, I think a, a criticism that is usually leveled at them is they don't do the accountability mm. stuff, right? Like there's, there's always going to be a market for what's on this weekend. You know, what are the good, you know, bars to, to hit? What are the festivals? Where do you go? Peep leaves or yeah. whatever. But, you know, I think where people always go to is who's going to hold the corrupt city council accountable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that the argument for doing these kind of summaries of what's going on type things would be the mm-hmm. first thing is we need to get people reconnected to high quality information that's been checked by professionals. So actually, yeah. if you can do a newsletter that, that all it does is it tells you 10 stories you need to know about today, but actually two trained journalists have checked over it. At least you can say, well, that's a hell of a lot better than the whole city being informed just by Facebook groups or just by you know stuff online. So I think that's a, yeah. that's, a, that's a legitimate thing to want to do. I think, as you say, the thing that really desperately needs to be built on top of that is journalism where there are questions asked and documents consulted and weeks spent trying to really put together a fair and robust picture of what's going on. And it's not just about the council. I, I get a little bit frustrated that people always default to thinking about local government when they think about local journalism. At these conferences, it's always yeah. about local government. Local government is one part of it. We do big stories. I, I wrote a you know five thousand word profile of the outgoing leader of Manchester City Council because he was a legitimate public figure. I spoke to national figures about him, local figures about him, off the record stuff, y- yada yada yada. But I don't think that that I don't, local government requires more scrutiny. But so what about local schools? What about local cultural organisations? What about local businesses who are who are screwing you know screwing over small independents? Or you know we recently did a story yeah. about that kind of thing. I think there's just like there are so many bits of our local life where there is not enough scrutiny. And I totally agree that like, if there's going to be yeah. a real renaissance in local journalism, it needs to get to that point for sure. But it also, it needs to be like audience centric. And I think that there's been a lot of like local, like capital J journalism stuff that literally, it's not audience centric, it's journalism, journalist centric, honestly, because there's a, a particular flavor of reporting that is popular at, at the conference you were at in Arizona. And it's, it acts, in my view, as if like all the other stuff doesn't matter or is just like fluff. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that's basically take. what I was trying to get at with the whole local government thing. There is this idea yeah. that I think comes out of journalism schools, which is that there is this, as you say, legitimate range of, of public interest journalism. It's always called public interest or whatever. And I think that right. stuff really matters. Like, but ultimately, if you can't build a business model Whereby people are, whereby people like your stuff enough, they want to read it enough that they're going to give you money. There's no point in having all these different categories about public interest, whatever. You have to do journalism that people are going to be really inspired by. They're going to read. They're going to want to pay for. The way I look at it is, if you just do a council story about something happening in local government, but you make it super dry and and you just present the sort of latest facts, often people are not going to want to pay for that. They're not going to find that interesting. They're not going to find it exciting. Or a lot of people aren't. If you can work it into a really great long form feature that really has the drama and goes behind the curtain and has the human stuff. The big thing that I think is so missing from the way we look at journalism these days is like the human component of it. I think we've stripped the humanity out of so much of what we're doing. And it means that like it's not exciting to read. It's kind of just fact, 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 fact. I think journalism is partly about giving people information, but it's also partly about showing people in their full humanity, showing people the flaws and, 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 and the other stuff about them, showing the, the, the people who've been affected by a story. I think one of the things I try to do with Emil 
is do a brand of journalism that is both exciting and interesting and dramatic to read and, 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 and takes you into a human story, but it also provides robust accountability for the people we're writing about. I think if you can get that balance, you're more likely to build something sustainable. I, I think you're right that there are a lot of, well, there are certainly some projects where you look at them and you think, that is great if your funder is a, you know, a university or, or whatever, but ultimately, if you, if people are not going to pay for that stuff. And, 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 and also like, why would they? Like, why, why are we trying to bore people's pants off all the time? Like, that, it, you, we have to give people variety. We have to give people eclectic stuff. I, I'm a big believer in that. Yeah. You guys have a few, like, uh, accent-related coverage. <laughs> yeah, noticed. we did a piece this week about, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. like that. Yeah, we did a thing about, uh, about accents across Greater Manchester earlier. The, the, the knock yes. on me is that my accent is very Southern and I'm, I'm running a local media company. No, I think you have to, you have to, you should have gone to, like, an, an accent class. And, <laughs> I should have. Blend in a little. All right. So what is next for like expansion? I mean, because I think, you know, you've always, I mean, you've proven out the model like as that, that it, it can work. And now, that, you know, I think the question is, how do you, or maybe you don't want to like grow it. Yeah, I, I, I do want to grow it. And I think the realization I had a few months ago was when a couple of my long-term readers kind of suggested to me, well, now you've got this working in Manchester and now you've got these people doing it in, in two other cities. Like, you know, are you going to make this the solution to British local journalism's problems, or are you not? Like, you know, I, and it was a bit like, well, yeah, actually, I think I can. I think I can do that, but I don't have the cash to do it. And these are kind of people who do have a bit of money. So I am, I mean, a bit of an exclusive on the on the Brian Morrissey po po podcast, oh, but, yeah. but I am just in the process of raising a little bit of funding. You know, not a huge seed oh, funding nice. or whatever, because basically. From a benevolent billionaire, <laughs> from, from, well, from benevolent long-term readers. To be fair, they're not they're not billionaires. <laughs> I wish they were. But the, the people who are putting in bits of money because they think the next time I get a call from someone in Leeds or in Birmingham, which happens quite a bit, that, that I, I'll actually be able to say, I can back you. Like, we can back you. We've got the team here, but we've also got the money to back you. It's almost like having a bit of a war chest, but not for defensive reasons, but for, but for like reasons of there are journalists across this country who are really, really hating their jobs and who don't believe in what they're yeah. doing anymore. And we've actually got a model that a lot of journalists really like. So it's like, I'm going to have a little bit of money in the bank to do that. But also, I've got a tiny team. Like I've got like two full-time reporters in Manchester plus freelance stuff and, and a bit of part-time. I've got one in Sheffield, one in Liverpool. Like we are at the minimum viable product to use a kind of boring startup term. And like yeah, yeah. we need to have a more sustainable team because the, the the amount of stories we get sent now is incredible, and and we have to cut we, we have to be so ruthless about what we cover, and it, it would be great to have a a bigger team in all these three cities so that we could really take on the stories that we want to. Okay, so somewhere like Leeds, I just looked it up. I don't know this off the top of my head. Population of eight hundred thousand. Can you have much of an impact there with one person? Like, what is the playbook? Like, how many people do you end up needing? Or how do you think about? But that? the crazy thing is in Sheffield, which is a, it's about seven hundred fifty thousand people, but in the wider South Yorkshire area, there you know, there's more than a million and a half. But you know, we've built up 950 paying subscribers with one guy, Dan, doing a lot of the reporting. Now, sure, I do a bit of the stuff, and good job, yeah, Dan. I mean, if you're yeah, listening, Dan's like, yeah, I mean, he's he's an <laughs> he's an incredible guy, such a such a such a talented guy, but also like working so so hard. He used to work for the local paper <laughs> there. He worked for the local Sheffield Star. And he came and did this when I got the money from Substack. He's got 950 people paying. He's the main reporter and editor. Sure, we get some people from Manchester to go over to help out with writing. He's got great freelancers. We've got like an intern there who's helping out. But like, it's a tiny, tiny operation. And yet people, you look at the comments under his stuff. Like if anyone's listening to this, go and look at the tweets about the Sheffield Tribune and look at the comments. People regard that outlet as like their quality outlet in the city. It's got 12,000 people on the email list. It's got 950 paying. It's a phenomenon. Like it's doing fantastic journalism, yeah. which is partly because Dan's brilliant, but it's also because this model works. If you give people high quality stuff on a regular basis, hey, you know, what a surprise! They they will be willing to pay for that. Yeah, uh, that's great. So, the goal is then to expand to a bunch of cities in England. It's funny. I and, I think that, I don't know, beyond. Yeah, I mean, the one big goal is to is to make the ones we've already got better and better, so that yeah. so that they can become the kind of quality news source in these places. And I think, yeah, the, and, and then to have enough money so that we can back people in more. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna rush that because this thing works if someone in a city really, really wants to do it and that city really, really needs it. And if those preconditions are in place, I mean, I only started in Sheffield because Dan got in touch with me two months after I started the mill and said, Hey, I love what you're doing, you know, whatever. So 
I love yeah, that. So, so that was totally, totally organic. And, and the money, the fundraising is going to come in also in an organic way. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm also reaching out to other people because I want to fill in an actual fundraising round. But, but I think that, um, yeah, I, the, the, the thing, I suppose the way I think about the ambition is not like more cities or more size or whatever. It's like, I want, once yeah. I'm finished with this, I want people to recognize what we've done as a genuine contribution to journalism in this country, a genuine game changer where people were like, wow, we didn't really believe that this kind of thing could happen. And this has totally changed things. Like maybe that's too much of a, maybe that's too much of a, that, maybe that, that's a lofty goal, but I really want it to be like, oh, that was a, that was a real oh, thing. That's a good goal. That was, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's sort of how I think about it. Don't be too English about this <laughs> sort of thing. It's good to have that. All right, let's leave it there, Yashi. That was uh, awesome. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time and it's really impressive what you and your team built. Thank you very much, Brian. Thanks a lot for listening. Please stay tuned for my conversation with Yaron in which we talk about the way to succeed with sustainable business models is actually for publishers to return to thinking first and foremost about the audience. Go figure. Too often the audience isn't central to these models and I think a lot of what I like to call adversarial business models spring from this mistake. Let's get into the conversation with Yaron. Okay, Yaron, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's a totally different era from 2006 when we talk about sustainable independent media, right? Like a lot of the things that I think all of us assumed from back at that time, some of them didn't come true, right? Like I think if we were looking back in 2006, that was sort of the era of the Mary Meeker slide was still being bandied about. Remember that one? It was like time time spent. Every single presentation had it. Time spent is here and um, budget spent on the internet is here. Those lines are going to like collapse. All this money is going to flow because that's where the attention is. And it, it really did happen, I think. So that assumption was right. The assumption that was wrong was that money would then go to the publishers that were creating the content because the money went um, to the platforms, <laughs> uh, not the publishers for the large, uh, to a large degree. Um, so let's talk about like how, um, and I feel like a lot of things are going on right now to, I don't want to say put the genie back in the bottle, but to sort of write that because um, it's obviously a been a difficult period for um, sustainable publishing models. Um, and I think in large part um, for this reason, um, what are the sort of three big um, challenges you think that publishers need to tackle when it comes to building these kind of sustainable models? Yeah. So I think the first thing is probably uh, kind of contrary to what you said, I think as long as as an industry, we're kind of blaming the tech platforms, the Facebooks, uh, the solution is not going to, is not going to happen. It's not the Facebook's uh, fault. It's, it's really how we as, as uh, the publishing industry thinks about the business. So I'd say the number one by far in everything publishers should do is making sure the, the user is coming uh, first. And I think that's probably the biggest lost opportunity that we've had in these, this transition to digital is uh, that we haven't necessarily put the user first. Uh, we as, as publishers uh, uh, tend, especially in the past 20 years, to put the advertiser first. And I'll just give one example, which I think is the uh, probably the most meaningful, is, uh, is that focus on maximizing RPMs. Uh, the old business model forever for the past hundred years or so has been for publishers has been to get higher and higher RPMs. Now that's, that's important. It's good, but users don't, don't care about RPM. There's not a single user, at least not that, that <laughs> I've ever met in the past 25 years that yeah. is saying, you know, this, this RPM is so delightful. I'm going to come back yeah. to you tomorrow. If, only, really if only there was greater yield on this site. That's what I, yeah. yeah. Dollar twenty-seven was delightful for me. I'm I'm going to be back tomorrow, and I, you know I think if we can take inspiration and learnings from the big tech platforms on one thing, it would be exactly this. They're very good at RPM, but they're even better at making sure that their user-driven KPIs, the engagement, the people coming back, is the is the top KPI, and RPMs are a result that has to be secondary. Okay, so think beyond the RPM is is the big and and I think this has been an essential challenge because it ends up coming down to short term thinking versus long term thinking, right? And everyone wants to 
think long-term, at least they think of themselves in the long-term. And then the pressures come, right? And, um, and I've seen this over the years, many times covering the industries where, and it's a point well taken, where there's been a lot of like blame. There's a lot of finger pointing and like, don't hate the player, hate the game. Look, we have no choice and, and all of this stuff where I don't know if that really flies with operating a business because you have to, you're responsible for how you operate the business and you make, you make a set of choices. Um, so I think taking control, publishers taking control of their future is absolutely critical. Yeah. And it's not in that short-term versus long-term uh, trade-off. It feels to me like some, some publishers think about this as, um, oh, you know, we'll, We'll make a trade-off of less revenue versus more revenue. And it's not the right trade-off, uh, I think. It's not the right mentality, at least. Uh, the the approach I'm proposing, I think, is much more financially greedy. It's just a different way of looking at things. So, again, to go back to the uh, to that RPM example, and if uh, I had to just abstract it, you know, it, I know that a dollar RPM is higher than 80 cents. I, that I'm not a big mathematician, but I do understand that math. But if we put user KPIs first, we might see that that dollar RPM experience is, is a crappy user experience and the users don't come back. Whereas with that 80 uh, cent RPM experience, users do find value and they come back. And so the right math is 80 cents plus 80 cents plus 80 cents plus 80 cents, which again, mathematically is much greedier than that dollar. Yeah. Uh, I just think it's the whole kind of advertising industrial complex is not is not constructed to be able to, uh, to materialize on that. Yeah. I remember like, um, back when I was at Digiday, like dot dash, uh, Neil uh, Vogel doing a presentation showing about, you know, going through how taking ads off the page ended up, ended up meaning more revenue. So like fewer ads, fewer, but better ads mean that like, you're going to end up making more money. Um, because, People are going to come back. You're going to develop trust. And over time, it's, it's an investment. Uh, and so, you know, I think that's the sort of short-termism is, is like just like wanting to, I guess, get all the revenue all at once um, and not thinking about that long-term relationship. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I agree with that. And I think Neil Vogel's uh, approach is very smart in that focuses on, you know, if you do less ads, there's more scarcity and you can actually charge a premium for the better experience very smart as well but i think even just the simple let's make sure if we're engaging users getting them to come back tomorrow valuing those ads of a second visit valuing those much more than a first visit kind of random anonymous uh uh visit ads uh, i think those are the way to rethink uh for sustain- sustainable future yeah thank you for listening this week we will be back next week with a new episode the rebooting show is produced by pod help us podcasts are a great way to expand your client base Pod Help Us lets you focus on having engaging conversations, giving your brand the full stack of services needed for a professional look and sound. Start your podcast today at podhelp.us.